a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. Today we interview USD Law Professor Frank Pomersheim about his career and the evolution of Pekin Indian Law in South Dakota. Professor Pomersheim, how are you doing today? Good. Great to be here. Last spring, you were um, honored, I guess, with a commendation from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe for, I think, maybe a career, a lifetime of, of work on Indian law. Um, it's a subject you teach here at the University of South Dakota School of Law. First, maybe, can you give us a little bit about your background, maybe where you went to law school and how you eventually ended up here in South Dakota? Sure. Uh, I actually grew up in New York City and its environs. I went to college. I went to Colgate University in uh, upstate New York, and then I went to Columbia Law School in New York City. I was the first person in my family to uh, graduate from college. I was the first person in my family to kind of go to law school. I had never really explored going to law school. I had never spoken to a lawyer in my life. I had never been to a law school class. And the reason I say that, that's not the way you should prepare to go to <laughs> law school. And so my experience at Columbia, though many, many years ago, was quite negative. But I learned from that. I mean, I learned some valuable things about the law. You know, when I went to law school, I was naive in a way, and I thought law school would be mostly about, like, justice. But my experience at Columbia was quite different. The thing that stuck in my mind was Lenny Bruce's famous observation that in the halls of justice, the only justice is in the halls. And so there wasn't much of a discussion in any of the classes that I was taking. That's interesting. I mean, to follow up, you would eventually um, pursue an internship in Alaska, a VISTA a program. Is that maybe why you kind of uh, took maybe a, a path less traveled? You were kind of searching for something that you found, I don't know, lacking in the traditional career? I mean, Columbia is a fantastic law school. You probably had opportunities to practice in New York, a huge market. What made you, you know, look for look for something out west. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing was, uh, and I was young and naive. I, I had no uh, experience within my family about how to make or establish or start a legal career. I mean, it was a time I, I was young and idealistic. The notion of justice was important to me. And there was nothing that I came across in my experience at Columbia or the job kind of opportunities. And then very late in the spring of my third year, they were conducting some interviews for an experimental program in Alaska, Volunteers in Service to America, and they were trying to recruit some uh, young law graduates to go. And so I interviewed and uh, was offered the position. And so I went. I was enthusiastic. I had never been west of the Mississippi River. We trained at the University of uh, Oregon and Eugene and then went up. And I worked with a person in a small town called Dillingham, Alaska, off of Bristol Bay. And he was not a lawyer. And we you just like thrown into the community and told to meet and work with people. And, you know, we were able to do that. And, you know, it was just an amazing experience. That was my first experience uh, with Native people in a different culture. And in Alaska, a tremendous remove uh, from what is generally referred to as the lower 48 and certainly a far remove from New New York and I don't know really quite how or why I, I, I was 
I enjoyed and learned a lot in the experience. I was kind of moved by it. It's my first kind of uh, real experience and a certain kind of immersion in uh, a different culture. And it made, you know, when I was there, you're just living like day by day, but it made like a, you know, a really strong imprint on me about the stuff I might want to ultimately do. You know, I'm, I'm curious, where did you grow up like as a child? Was it in New York? In New York, partially. I was born in, uh, you know, New York is five counties. I was born in Queens and uh, lived in Queens through most of elementary school. I lived in a Catholic working class neighborhood. I went to a Catholic school and then my family moved out about 30 miles outside of New York City in Nassau County into what was then a small town called Seaford near Jones Beach and that's where I ultimately grew up and graduated from high school and stuff. You know, you say a small town, how rural was it actually? I, I noticed that that's one thing with people who maybe come from the East Coast, their definition of rural might be a little different than, than people well, out uh, here. Surprisingly, it's not. I'm old enough and I was just telling this to someone the other day the town that i grew up in when i first went there didn't even have its own high school you'd had to go to a neighboring high school okay. and when they built the high school that i actually went to it was built on a dairy farm literally so that part of Nassau County was a dairy farm. And so where my high school was built on a dairy farm. And the town was relatively small. I can still remember the number of students in my high school graduating class was 154. Okay. Well, we'll give you credit for that, I guess. You, you count. We'll, we'll, <laughs> well count it. you know, people who went to, uh, I know many people who, who went to high school in, in Sioux Falls. And all the high schools in Sioux Falls are, have much bigger graduating classes than 154. You know, the reason I ask, I guess, is, you know, just the, the kind of polar opposite nature, right, of, of New York and then a place like Alaska. I mean, how much of an impact, is that something that you saw? Was that intentional? You kind of wanted this complete different experience? Or was it something else maybe that drew you to Alaska? Well, I, I think it was partially sort of happenstance that that opportunity presented itself. I, I wasn't searching out that opportunity. As I was saying before, it just all of a sudden came at the law school. It was my first and only interview I took in law school because it sounded interesting and exciting to me. I was interested in VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, the domestic version of the Peace Corps. And so when I had been at college finishing at Colgate, I was interested in the Peace Corps was just starting and VISTA was just starting. So those are the kind of things that attracted me to providing kind of vehicles for young idealism. And so when I was finishing law school, that just kind of presented itself as like one opportunity maybe to try to use these new skills in in the context of working in in this context native communities to see if there was anything that I could contribute and you know it, it's hard to you know maybe for someone like yourself for to, to kind of understand those times because those under time you know there was a significant group of people who were interested in, in being idealistic and, and like doing things you know the notion was to you know get out there and kind of do things you know be careful of the status quo be careful of the legal establishment and for whatever reason I can't quite explain them to myself I, I was attracted by that what year did you go to Alaska? When I graduated from law school, uh, somebody can find out how old I am, but I graduated from law school in 1968. Okay. And oh, wow. So, and that was also, in 1968, was the year of 
amazing school unrest. Right. Columbia was one of the places that was taken over by students at that time, though not law students and not at the law school. So I was experiencing as I was finishing, mostly as an observer, not as a participant, uh, really strong student activism. It was also just the beginning of rumblings um, against the developing Vietnam War. It was also the notion of still had sort of a Kennedy-esque kind of aura to it about like serving your country in a way by working uh, with people perhaps less fortunate than yourself. And so for reasons that I don't know, because no one else in my family really shared it, I was kind of uh, captured by that ethos. And how long was the was the program in Alaska? It was two years. Two years. Yeah, and, and the first year I was in this town called Dillingham with my partner, and we were just to kind of meet people. And so we began to meet people in the community of Dillingham, which is roughly about eight or 900 people. And then we had responsibility for all these small native communities up the Nushigak River. And so we used to travel and do kind of various things. In the context of the legal work, we were sponsored by Alaska Legal Services. And one of the things we did is that there would be a number of native people who would be raising children uh, in the traditional way as relatives. They wouldn't necessarily be the biological parents of these children. Uh, but in order to qualify for certain state and federal benefits, uh, they would have had to uh, adopt those children. So one of the things Alaska Legal Services had put together was what we called an adoption packet. And so as you met people in these communities, it became apparent to us that they were raising children as their parents but had no legal recognition of that, we would take care of adoptions for them. You know, that resonates with me just with the Alaska Tax Clinic um, that the the law school sponsors um, interviewed Caleb Paulson. Uh, I guess this would have been last year. He had a similar story, where kind of a similar situation, but the ramifications of how that you know impacted the tax filings that they would claim and sticky situations where you know how you claim a dependent and stuff like that. And you know, he talked about it. I mean, he, they would leave just with people who they were able to resolve situations that had been you know plaguing them for dozens of years and I mean it, it made a huge impact in their life. How would you eventually get to South Dakota? It wasn't straight to the University of South no, Dakota. No it definitely wasn't and so I was there my, my first year and then the second year I was a supervisor in the town of Bethel supervising other VISTA volunteers and one of the things we did while we were there uh, and we got in trouble for was it was on the eve before the Alaska Native Land Claim Settlement Act was actually passed by Congress. It was this incredible issue because it had never been resolved in the context of Native people, and this was tipping into the 1970s, about recognizing land title that they had. You know, just goes back to the Treaty of 1867 between the United States and Russia, in which Russia transferred Alaska to uh, the United States. But, you know, for a century plus, almost going on two centuries, there wasn't any resolution of native land claims to the land. And then, because it's so big and spacious, there wasn't really much controversy over the land. But when Alaska became a state in 1957, that began this kind of process of the state as part of statehood, they would be able to claim a certain amount of federal lands, they would become state lands. And as they began to do that, native people were beginning to say, well, wait a minute. 
This is our land. You know, the state doesn't have the right to just jump in and claim it. And so that began this notion from the native point of view that they would likely have to be engaged in some kind of litigation and eventually some kind of congressional solution to owning their land. And I was there just happenstance when this discussion was actually happening. And two things about the discussion. Uh, our responsibility was just to inform people in quite rural areas of Alaska. And I remember like trying to explain to native people uh, all about this and that, you know, they might have to, they might lose their land or they might have to choose their land. And their kind of point of view is how, how can this be? We have lived here for generations and generations, and now all this stuff is kind of being uh, talked about. And it was, to me, it was an interesting experience and challenge to translate the language of this very complex proposed law into a, and just in the context of English, so that local native people could actually understand it. And to me, it was a very valuable uh, lesson. I, that is really interesting to me. I mean, it just, it resonates with so much of what, you know, still the history of native people are in South Dakota in a visceral way, right? You, you know, kind of lived that experience of, of, you know, the land transfers and how that actually operated. So when, when would you eventually then come to South Dakota? Yeah, so when I finished in Alaska, I eventually came back to New York and I was doing some work in New York. I actually worked for the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs in uh, a storefront legal office in East Harlem, uh, dealing with consumer protection for poor people. That was also really eye-opening. And also at the same time, I began to become very active in a nonviolent way, opposing the war in Vietnam. And that's a long story in and of itself, which involved getting arrested a three-month trial with a group known as the Camden 28. And then and we were acquitted, and I was looking around for work and stuff, and through a friend of a friend informing me, hey, there's this college just starting in South Dakota on the Rosewood Sioux Indian Reservation, and they were looking for someone with a, a legal background that might begin to develop some classes at this brand new college. Would I be interested in it? I was. I'd never been to South Dakota. And so I got invited out for an interview, and in the context of the interview, took the train from New York City to Minneapolis, flew into what I thought was Pierre, South Dakota, <laughs> right. but was quickly schooled that it was Pierre. <laughs> Came down for the first time, you know, I had been in native country. In Alaska, there really were no, were no reservations there, so my first introduction into lower 48 Indian country was interviewing for position on the Rosewood Sioux Indian Reservation. I was offered the position to begin teaching at Syntag Lester College, and so my wife and I moved. We, we had never owned a car, and so when we're finishing the interview in uh, at Rosebud, it's like, well, we should get a car. And I said, what kind of car should we get? So people started saying, you should get a Chevy Nova. Well, okay, we'll get a Chevy Nova. So I went back to New York, uh, looked around for a Chevy Nova with a straight six <laughs> with no air conditioning because back in those days, I took the position uh, that if God wanted us to have air conditioning, we'd have different 
climatology uh, <laughs> situation. But we had a 73 Nova. We drove out, and I started teaching at Syntec Glass. We lived way, it was a beautiful uh, farmhouse way out in the country. And my wife began as a teacher's aide at Rosebud. And so we didn't have any children at the time. We think, well, this would be interesting to do for a year or two. And the years just kept turning over. And so I worked at Sinte for seven years, and then three years, I was the director of Dakota Plains Legal Services, the statewide Indian Legal Services program. And after 10 years, you know, I was kind of interested in learning more about, because I saw it as a coming issue in India, about economic development. And again, through luck and a certain amount of happenstance, I got what was called the Bush Leadership. I was a Bush Leadership Fellow for mid-career people. And so I spent a year at the Kennedy School at Harvard and got a master's in public administration. And when I was finishing that year, it was like, well, would we go back to South Dakota or look about maybe staying back east? And again, through happenstance, I noticed uh, about midway through the year in the State Bar newsletter that the law school was looking for a faculty member, particularly they were looking for someone to teach Indian law. So I kind of threw my hat into that ring and came out and was interviewed and was offered that position. And so I came to law school in the fall of 1984. In a prior conversation that we've had, you sort of talked about the notion of decentralized learning um, when you taught at uh, Sintag Leska. First of all, what is that concept and how, I'm just curious because it's so maybe diametrically opposed in a lot of ways to education that you see at a university like this. What was kind of the ethos behind it and yeah, what value, I guess? That's a good question. The, the model was, and it was partially a model of necessity because when Sintag Leska College started, it had no campus. Uh, it was just more an idea. There was like one building. It was a condemned BIA building where there were the, the very few administrative offices. And then the thing was, well, what we're going to do is we're, we're not going to have people come here because really there was no here there. We're going to take our classes out to the communities. And so the college, and I came when it was about one year old, it was like, well, we'll just go out to the communities and ask them what kind of classes they would want. This before Sinte was accredited in any way, and we'll just offer classes that people want in their communities, in community halls, church uh, halls, those kind of things. And that's, that's the model that grew up uh, of taking education to where the people were rather than the more conventional model that they would come to, even in a rural context, come to some campus. And, you know, I, I think that was a very successful model. It was also true that there was an expectation of faculty members, particularly faculty members who were non-native and not from the area. You were expected to get involved in community activities. And to me, that was very, very important that there were some people on the staff. There's a particular man who was at that time the chairman of, of the board of directors at Sinte. It was actually his vision, Stanley Redbird. And so Stanley would oftentimes come around and, you know, take me to community meetings 100 miles away from the community of Rosebud so I would get to know people. Uh, the notion was we were encouraged to go to powwows and other things. I am 
I guess maybe it's in the past tense. Now. I was an athlete and played a lot of basketball and softball through the college level, and there were plenty of opportunities on Rosebud to play both uh, basketball and softball. So through those kind of things, it was really important because I think for people, you know, seeing you as their teacher and you are kind of an outsider, uh, if you don't intermingle with the community outside the classroom, you remain, you know, kind of, a bit isolated and so somewhat advertently somewhat inadvertently as a result of going to uh, powwows and being inviting to go to Lakota ceremonies and sort of the sports thing people got to see me my family more just in the community and they could see that despite whatever skills I had in the classroom I also was whatever, an ordinary good person that they would see around the community and was able to begin to have sort of a, a bond with people and, and communities because they saw you. I mean, they respected the work you did in terms of your formal job, in terms of teaching, and because also I was a lawyer, I could give some kind of informal legal advice. But, you know, just for them to see you, you know, more in their communities, you know, in their homes, it just created, you know, a bond of some kind, a notion of reciprocity. And the reason I emphasize that is that in a place like Rosewood, it's probably still true today, is like the public school system, the Todd County public school system. Well, in order to recruit teachers, they provide housing. But all the housing is like 100 yards away from the school. And so unless those teachers make a real effort, that the natural flow of their experience is not to have any experience in the community. It's also true for the doctors at the Indian Health Service because in order to recruit them, you have to provide housing for them. And so they'll have their housing most of the time right by the hospital. And so unless they make this extraordinary effort, they don't get out into the community. And one of the things, one part of the ethos at Sinte, which was very powerful, is like, what I was just saying before, you're, you're expected to get involved in the community. And they had no Sinte housing. So oftentimes, you know, you wound up living in and around or in native communities or way out in rural uh, French, uh, ranch territory. You know, I wonder if that was part of the reason why then you were trusted with positions of responsibility in you know, Indian adjudication. I mean, you've served as a, a justice on, on tribal courts. I mean, do you think if you'd have just been a, a teacher and not like a real member of the community, would you have ever been asked for the for those sorts of things? Well, it's, it, to be honest, it's hard to know, but I, I think part of it's just a common sense in a way. When people get a chance to know you uh, in in a certain way, they. You know, they have more sort of confidence and, and comfort with, with you. And I think that's that's a big thing. I mean, because oftentimes, and this may or may not sound controversial to people, is that, you know, oftentimes non-Native people who go to Indian country, you know, they, they want to be helpful. But oftentimes they come with no, thinking they know what the answer is and they don't really have sort of true reciprocal kind of relationships with Native people. Also a big thing is sort of patience. And so oftentimes, you know, I think non-Native people that come to Indian country, they don't 
have the time or the inkling or the expectation that you know they have to have whatever their skill is yes they have to use their skill but they have to be able to interact in ordinary community activities and for me i can only speak for myself that was like very very significant um well i wonder if it's kind of informed some of your teaching methods you uh, teach a class, Indian law class, that um, a vital component of is a field trip where you actually take students and you go to reservation communities. Um, what's that about? I mean, is it, the, is it kind of the same process, just the exposure and getting people into the communities is what you think provides them with a, a I guess, better understanding of, you know, the challenges that those communities face in a more, like, realistic way? Yeah, I mean, so, but it's also like a product of necessity from my point of view. Like when I first started teaching at the law school, I mean, I was kind of a strange creature because I'm not from South Dakota. I had lived 10 years in South Dakota, but all of it in Indian country. I had like no exposure to living in South Dakota off of the Rosebud Sioux Indian Reservation. So when I started teaching Indian law, and most of my students were from South Dakota, I just assumed that they had some experience on the reservation. And maybe after teaching Indian law two, three years, it was just like, no, this isn't true. They don't. They don't know anything about it. And so I began to think about it, and the word that came to mind and maybe jarring to some people to hear was apartheid, was that many, and it didn't mean they were racist in any way, but almost all my non-native South Dakota law students in my early days, honestly, I would admit they had never really traveled to Indian country, partially because they had negative stereotypes about it. It was also true just in the natural flow of their lives that wouldn't bring them to Indian country. And so my thinking was, no, we, we, I can talk about it in class, and I did and do, but we need to go out there so that my non-native students, including native students as well, is th this is the place. We're going to go out there. You're going to get an experience of that physical landscape, and parts of Rosebud are incredibly beautiful. You're going to see a tribal court in action. You're going to meet Lakota people who are tribal judges and work on court. Just to get the flavor, it's just like a two-day window about here are some things you'll experience that will be different. But you'll also see that Lakota people are also, they're just like you in a way. They're trying to do good things for their communities. And to me, over time, I've been doing it now creeping up on 30 years, and I know from reading student evaluations and what students tell me, it's like an incredible, powerful, and eye-opening experience for them. You know, what is your take maybe on like the state of you know, Indian relations in South Dakota. You know, people talk about like the reconciliation era with, you know, Mickelson. Uh, I, I don't know if a, a another governorship, I mean, we, we've seen efforts, the, um, you know, designation of tribal officials like as a department level. I mean, these are these are important steps. You and I had talked previously about um, uh, agreement of understanding between Sisseton and the state um, that dealt deals with parole. And I, I don't know, it, it kind of goes back to this philosophy that, that you've talked about, which is that an important legal skill to have is the ability to solve a problem, right? It's, it's not always confrontation. It's also sometimes um, negotiation and agreement. Uh, can you tell us a little bit maybe about using this you know, parole issue. I don't know if 
people are familiar with it. I don't, I don't know if you can maybe talk about that and how you know the state has cooperated with um, you know tribes on some of these legal issues. Yes, I mean to me it's and this is true throughout Indian country, but there are tribes and reservations in almost all western <clears throat> states and in most of the states and that's an important kind of government to government relationship between a tribal sovereign and a state sovereign and they're the two sovereigns like right next to each other on the ground although the federal sovereign kind of permeates that and just the way history has developed there are significant sort of problems and issues that tribes and states kind of face in some ways together and my view is remarkably simple in a way is that if you can cooperate uh, if you can have an agreement on how to deal with some of these difficult problems you can hopefully with good lawyering being part of it <clears throat> have a win-win situation and unfortunately from my point of view is that the history between tribes and the state of South Dakota has been relatively too severely negative and each side to a certain degree and it varies uh, has a bit of a distrust or mistrust of the other sovereign and so there needs to be work and has been work on kind of both sides of trying to come together uh, in share solve mutual problems and you had mentioned and i can give it as an example would be the issue of parole the problem in the context of parole for native prisoners who are in the south dakota state penitentiary is that the state has been very reluctant to grant parole to native inmates if they're going to return to the reservation why? Well, you might think if you just heard about it, it's just like racism and not really. It's like, it's just the, the, the twists and oddities of Indian law. If a native person is on parole from the South Dakota penitentiary and he goes back home to the reservation, the state loses jurisdiction over him. And so rightly or wrongly, the state has been hesitant to grant parole to native inmates who are going to go back home and they'll lose legal authority slash contact with them. Is that like an insoluble problem? Well, I think oftentimes both sides would think yes. But at Sisseton, it's like, well, if Sisseton and their leadership was concerned about this, if their concern is, well, we want the opportunity for Sisseton tribal members who are in the penitentiary to get a fair shot of parole and be able to come back home. Well, can you get those two things to come together? And the answer is yes. And the agreement, which I believe is still in effect, was negotiated that the state indicated that it would consider Sisseton inmates in the state penitentiary as equal candidates for parole even if they're going to go back home, if the tribe committed itself to actually monitoring as any parolee would be normally mo uh, monitored by its own parole, but they would take care of the monitoring and they were committed if the parolee was back home, not carrying out his parole responsibilities, that the tribe would take him, bring him into tribal court to see if it was true as a matter of law, whether he was or wasn't complying with his parole agreement. And if he wasn't, you know, the tribe was committed after due process of returning him to the state. And the state, as far as I understand, they were okay with that. 
And so there's an example, and this is where I think legal skills can be important. That's the stuff I emphasize to my students. This is, just, this is what makes you different. You know, we, we understand the law. Hopefully we have the ability, if we're creative and have the craft of lawyering, to solve problems. And so that example, to me, is a very good and powerful example when there's goodwill which is probably a necessary condition preceding. Like, let's try to solve this problem. And you have kind of people who are uh, people of goodwill and have good lawyering skills that, that you can make this happen. You know, another, I, I think, bright spot, it, it was something that I didn't necessarily know until I started coming to law school. But in South Dakota, um, on the bar examination, the test, it is a requirement that you will see an Indian law question. And I think that is fairly unique. I think you've said that we're the only state in the country. Um, I think that actually does say something positive about our jurisprudence, that we you know, understand that, that the legal issues that you know native people face when they're in reservation communities are, are important, and you might have to deal with those in, in your craft. I don't know if you want to comment on that. And was that something that's always existed? Is that something that's relatively new? How did that kind of yeah, come into well, being? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. I do want to say something about it. I mean, probably in the last 15 years, there was a bit of a move in Indian country states around that very issue, saying Indian laws become more and more important, and states should begin to include it as a question on state bar exams. And New Mexico was really, I think, the first state to say that they were going to do it, but they made it discretionary. And it was also true that the state of Washington, I think technically they were second and they were going to make it somewhat discretionary. And through complete kind of happenstance in South Dakota, South Dakota, which was the third state, they were going to make it mandatory. And it did become mandatory, and it is mandatory. And both New Mexico and the state of Washington have kind of gone even further away from doing it in a discretion way. And here we are in South Dakota. It's the only state in the country in which Indian law is a mandatory essay question on every state bar exam. And as you were suggesting, Mike, it, it's significant because it shows, at least in the context of the statewide legal community, the licensing part of the state bar, that, you know, they kind of put it out there. We realize how important Indian law is, and we realize it's so important, we're going to put it on the bar exam. And it is. And, you know, our students, they know that it's a bar exam question. And so they're, even if they're not particularly interested necessarily in working with or serving Indian people, just from, a, I don't mean this negatively, just from a self-interest point of view, they might be likely to take Indian law because they know it's on the bar exam. And I'm the person who drafts the question for the state bar exam. And every year I get questions from people who are coming into South Dakota to take our bar exam who haven't had Indian law wherever they went and they want to get a you know some grip or angle on how they might prepare I give them some hints about how, how they might prepare so I, I think that's something that the state should really be, be proud of and I think that it is at least within the legal community but you know good things are usually the product of sort of incremental good things. And I think the state bar Indian law question is that example. 
you know, and we should probably start summing this up. I, I think I could talk to you for a while. If you could kind of project maybe next 5, 10, 15, maybe 25 years, what do you think the most significant issues that South Dakota will have to deal with in terms of our relationship with reservation communities? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are a number of things. I, I think the, because we saw it recently in uh, Standing Rock in North Dakota, I, I think there will be growing issues uh, around natural resources. You know, native water rights in South Dakota have never really been uh, adjudicated, so there is the issue of water rights. Uh, there is the potential issue of various sort of pipelines uh, coming under South Dakota and or parts of Indian country and I think more and more at least from the native point of view that's kind of a no-go situation and so I, I think you know if people are trying to get ahead of these issues that that's the kind of thing that they should be thinking about. One, and second, there continue to be struggles and potential misunderstandings about how criminal jurisdiction actually works in Indian country. I think there's a big issue about civil jurisdiction, which is not only true to South Dakota, but sort of nationally, under what circumstances uh, do tribal courts have civil jurisdiction over non-Indians who have engaged in uh, commercial and other activities on on the reservation. So I think all those things will continue uh, in play. It's also, I believe, true uh, that Native people are going to become uh, more active in the state politics and as a voting group uh, that you know has to be taken into account uh, unfortunately probably historically and I've written uh, about this there have been any number of lawsuits from the local school board level to the county level to the state level claiming that various divisions of South Dakota uh, intentionally or unintentionally uh, discriminated against Native voters and Native op uh, opportunities to run for office. And I think that's something that, you know, needs to be addressed. I mean, i give you an example. It's like there have been all these lawsuits, you know, about these voting issues. And there's, ne to my mind, there's never been like a conference or a meeting of tribes in the state just to talk about this. It's like, what, why do we have these kind of struggles over voting issues? And to me, you know, if you're going to get to a solution, you have to begin with a conversation. And I believe it is true that that conversation hasn't ever really taken place in the state. And that, for me, is one of the problems is that, you know, in most other states, the political process and the party organizations are vehicles for communicating about different issues. But I think it remains true, although maybe uh, it, it's changing in, in the context of this particular governor's race. But it's like, what does each party, what is the Democratic Party platform in the governor's race say about native issues and native affairs and what does the republican party plank say and without commenting on this election i know in the past that you know roughly speaking neither party would have much to say and I, I think that has hindered the ability of cooperation to develop or understanding to develop uh, between Native and non-Native people is that the conventional political parties, as far as I can tell, don't have much to say about those issues. 
and I encourage people in both parties to have a better understanding of Native issues so that they become not something off to the side, but something integral to how each party thinks about what it's putting out uh, for South Dakota citizens, both Native and non-Native. To switch gears, I guess, one last time, I have you in class. I'm a first-year law student at the University of South Dakota, and you kind of open up every class with a poem. And you don't really get into it. You don't really explain it. Just You just kind of let them sit, I guess. And at first, I thought this was a little bit curious. I was like, are lawyers, are they known as poets? But yeah, the more I thought about it, I was like, there's some intentionality with the law in terms of, of words, right? And maybe that's the criticism of law is that sometimes that gets infinitely regressive. And so maybe it's not that coincidental that as a lawyer, you would be kind of attracted to word craft, I guess, um, for lack of a better meaning or, or lack of a better phrase. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think about this in terms of like speech writing, that the goal is to kind of give effect um, with your words, right? And in law, it's a little bit opposite. I think the goal of words, sometimes you're, you're trying to give meaning um, to these situations. First of all, I, I'm curious, why do you kind of start class with a poem? Is there a reason for that? And and what maybe drew you to poetry? Well, it's an interesting question. It's a fabulous question. I've always uh, been interested, you know, in poetry. I can remember in high school, I, I come from a working class family where Poetry was not stuff we came across in the house that I was brought up in. And I had like this terrific uh, senior high school teacher, and he would just, when we read the romantic poets, you know, Shelley and Keats and Byron, he, he would just read them. And God, he had so much emotion. It just like really touched me that words could like have that kind of resonance. And so I'd always been interested in poetry, and I began to write poetry it's a separate but long story and you know at some point people said nice things about uh the poetry and so i was thinking in the context of teaching going back to teaching like one of the things i i learned when i was teaching at st Glasgow college now st Glasgow university of rosebud is like the key thing is like how do you engage your students how do you get them to really want to do the work how do you get them to really want to come to class because not only what they're actually going to learn, but there's some kind of larger kind of connection. And so at, at some point, you know, in terms of writing poetry and stuff, I was thinking, well, maybe I try this in class. You know, there's a person on campus, a dear friend of mine, Mike Roach, and Mike and I have had many conversations over the years about teaching and how kind of to push the envelope in terms of engaging your students. And, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from Mike about, you know, how you might do that, you know, talking about your kids and stuff. And so for me, I was like, well, I'll, I'll try some poems, you know. And, uh, you know, I started saying some poems, and you're right. They, I just pick poems because I like them, not because they illustrate some point of law. I just like kind of put them out there. And, you know, students, as far as I could, they had like a very positive kind of response. I could just tell just from the class itself, but oftentimes on student evaluations, they would say that they really appreciated the poems. And in recent years, there are all these like Buddha poems. And so this whole, I don't know if you picked it up yet at the law school, it's kind of like a whole sort of Buddha ethos and mystique uh, about those kind of things. And because words are very, as you know, the words are central in poetry. 
and they're also central in the law. So in some way, even though particular poems don't have anything to do with the law, they do have to do with kind of words. And so I, I think there's that connection. It's also true, you know, I have some intentionality, but not completely. It's just like, well, we'll see what happens. And I think for sometimes for students, you know, I can tell, I think, rightly or wrong, it's kind of opening them up in some ways. And sometimes they just think the stuff is funny. And sometimes it's like, well, I don't really get, like, why he's reading that poem, even though he explained it kind of thing. So I'm committed to it because my, my take, you know, based on student evaluations and stuff is, like, students like it enjoy it sometimes find like special unexpected resonances that the poems have for the uh, materials and stuff and so as a kind of vehicle of engagement the feedback that I've received is overwhelmingly that it helps to engage students so I'm good with it well we'll bring you back on we'll we'll do a poetry session maybe at a later date um, yeah it sounds great you know we have we like to kind of end the podcast with a, a little bit of a philosophical question. And I'm curious, you know, you've talked about your career. It's, I mean, gone from New York City to rural Alaska to kind of centralized here in, in South Dakota. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? Um, not, <laughs> my wisdom is not much. I mean, it's an interesting question because I oftentimes uh, my own children, we have three children, they're all adults. They would ask like dad, like, what? tell me about your life so I can get some guidance about how to navigate. And, you know, I get a little bit into it and they just kind of shake their heads and walk away because it doesn't have like a linear kind of thing that's really helpful to them. Uh, although I think they appreciate it, they respect it, they're kind of amazed by it. And, and so for me... It's just what it is and, you know, what, what's coming next. Uh, I mean, I really don't know, you know, at some point I suppose I will be retiring. And it's like what I, I have, like, no idea what that would be. And so, you know, part of it is you're, you're making a life in some way and you're conscious of how some of the pieces add up, but you're not sure what actually uh, comes next. And that's both uh, exciting not to know, despite my age, and sometimes it's a little uh, disconcerting, disorienting to say, well, you know, you've been, you're this age, you've been doing these things, what's next? And you can't say what's next. I mean, you don't, you know, look how old you are. I mean, so for me, it's not a path that I consciously chose and it remains kind of unknown but I, I guess I'm comfortable with that and have enough confidence that whatever comes next will be something that uh, is however it's measured sort of appropriate for me. Uh, Professor Palmersheim, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a great conversation. I hope we have a chance uh, in a subsequent one just to talk about it and for me to, to read a bunch of poems. That'd be great. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview Julia Helwich, a professor in the Department of Political Science, about campaign advertisements. Until next time, go Yotes.